Hello, and welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast, the podcast where we talk justice with a special guest over coffee. On this episode, I speak to Glenn Pounder, COO of the Child Rescue Coalition, or CRC for short. Glenn spent over 30 years serving Her Majesty's government in the UK and overseas as an HM customs officer and later as an agent of the National Crime Agency in Portugal and Miami before joining CRC a few years ago. In this podcast, Glenn shares about his career investigating cross-border crime, his time as the liaison officer in Portugal during the Madeleine McCann disappearance, and his present-day work training police forces around the world in identifying suspects involved in the possession, production, and supply of child sexual abuse material. With that in mind, this podcast may cover topics that could be triggering for some and may also not be appropriate for the younger listener. So I would encourage you to choose a time and a place to listen to this one that works best for you with that in mind. As ever, I want to add that we choose to cover these subjects, difficult and uncomfortable though they might be, because they are the pertinent justice issues of the day. And we believe that it is far better to be informed than ignorant to such matters. Awareness leads to action. I also want to say hello to new listeners. We're always getting new subscribers to this podcast and I haven't yet taken the chance to say hi, welcome, it's great to have you with us. If you're listening today because this is a subject that you're trying to learn more about, why not listen to our chat with Special Agent Alani Bankhead about her work protecting the children of Hawaii? Or John Tanago, the Director of International Justice Missions Centre to End Online Sexual Exploitation of Children based out in the Philippines. In today's episode, Glenn actually refers back to a podcast we recorded a few months ago with Lexi Smith, who spoke to us about developing a trauma-informed response to survivors of sex trafficking. All great listens. Give them a look. But as for now, it is time to pour yourself a hot cup of joe. Get out a big pile of ironing or get on with the washing up or simply sit back in your favourite comfy chair and listen to my chat with Glenn Pounder. Ready when you are, mate. Yeah, I'm good. I have my coffee. In that case, let's begin. Glenn, welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast. Thank you, my friend, for, for finding time for us this morning to chat about, about your life, about your experience in fighting for justice in the capacity that, that you do now with Child Rescue Coalition. Now, tell me, I understand, I think, because I often get my international clocks a little bit mixed up, but it's... What, 9 a.m. over there in, in the U.S.? Whereabouts in the U.S. are you again? Remind me. In, uh, yeah, and thanks for having me on, of course, Bryn. Um, Yeah, just after 9 a.m. In, in sunny Boca Raton, which is near Fort Lauderdale in South Florida. Florida. I tell you what, that will make many an English listener jealous. That's probably the better word. I mean, I've just managed to squeeze in a break to Spain. I, I, uh, I was one of those people last year. I was... I couldn't understand the outrage of everyone protesting about their human rights being infringed because they couldn't go for two weeks, all inclusive on the Costa del Sol. You know, I thought, come on, there's a pandemic, get a grip. It's not important. Fast forward 12 months and I'm like, gosh, I have got to get out of here. And some, some are even more so, you know what it's like over here in the UK. We look forward to August, it comes and goes and you think, was that? Was that our summer? Is that is that as good as it gets? So I snuck off for a week, but I should imagine you get your fair share of sunshine in Fort, well, uh, Boca Raton. 
Yeah, I, I mean, really, um, this is our winter period, of course, because it's actually a little bit, a little bit too hot outside, a little bit too uncomfortable. Um, but I would suggest if you are going to be working from home for the last eighteen months or something, you might as well be living in Florida, right? yeah yeah that's true yeah locking down in florida must be a totally different experience to to what it's like here so i take it you've caffeinated yourself for this for this interview yeah i'm I'm on my second big cup of the day when you'll be pleased to know i am pleased to know that i am pleased to know that before blue bear existed i had this idea before it became somewhat philanthropic and altruistic i had an idea of having a uh, a coffee and donut shop um called coffee and donuts or something creative like that uh, mm-hmm. and with a sort of police theme you know the sort of chief wiggum every, yes. every cop likes a, a bag yeah. of donuts and a black coffee you know i think that's <laughs> it's fairly universal so i'm glad you haven't bucked the trend no, it, it is absolutely universal. And of course, um, here in the US, you're either, I hope you don't mind me mentioning another coffee uh, <laughs> other than yours, but um, you're either normally a Starbucks guy or a Dunkies guy, a Dunkin', Dunkin Donuts guy. And, and I'm a bit more of a Starbucks guy. So. Right. So this is how I understand it. So is it Dunkin Donuts own the east coast and like crispy cream own the west coast or something like that but everywhere i went in new york it was dunkin donuts everywhere in la it was crispy cream have i got that right yeah that, i think that's pretty much right i mean i've spent most of my time more in the east of the us uh but yeah i mean certainly if you're in boston somewhere like that they're like come on let's you know let's go donkeys like, yeah, a bit more of a starbucks guy you know <laughs> They're like, you're English, you drink coffee? I'm like, yeah, some of us drink coffee, you know. So. Yeah, not just uh, not just tea. Yeah. So why don't you start uh, at the outset? For those people that are unfamiliar with Child Rescue Coalition, why don't you just share a little bit about who they are and what you're doing for them? Yeah, sure. So Child Rescue Coalition, uh, we monitor unregulated uh, spaces on the internet uh, for those involved in the dangerous and highly illegal trade of child sexual abuse material. And um, through a training course, we provide then free technology to law enforcement worldwide to investigate those suspects. So for, for me, I first came into touch with Child Rescue Coalition when I was based here in the US for the National Crime Agency. I was actually based in the British Consulate in Miami, which again, you know, Another difficult posting for any law enforcement officer. I bet. Um, but but Child Rescue Coalition's technology was um, already being used and highly successfully. And um, I helped Child Rescue Coalition spread to, to, to other countries. And then eventually through that relationship, uh, they asked me if I would consider resigning from the National Crime Agency and, and coming to work full time at, at, at CRC, as we call ourselves often. That's that's helpful. I. I didn't know that connection. So you were actually deployed working for the UK National Crime Agency in the US before before that that job was extended to you. I was going to ask how that that worked. And were you you? I know your son is in the house because his alarm was going off earlier. Yeah. So, so um, you have a, you had a family out there. You you've been based in the US for a while. Yeah. So my, my our older son actually had his whole high school experience here in the US, which again you can imagine for 
you know, a British kid was was kind of mind blowing, but uh, really loved it here. Um, actually, our, our youngest son was born in Portugal, one of my other previous very difficult posts for the Queen, bless her. Mm. Um, and so we've had a bit of a travel around the world. Um, we, we actually left the US for getting on for two years um, because there's such a thing as a green card process, which takes a little while. So then we left for two years and then came back here permanently. Yes. Growing up at high school in the US for your son, I like to hope that he's truly exploited any Englishness <laughs> left in his accent. I, I did a semester when I was at uni. I took the opportunity to do a semester abroad and pretty much threw a dart at a blackboard and ended up of all places in Wichita, Kansas. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, no, no disrespect to, to uh, those folk from Wichita, Kansas, but even the chap that picked me up from the airport was like, why did you pick Wichita? You had the whole of the US. Why did you pick here? Um, but I, I made the most of it. And I really hammered the English. You know, I've never spoken like that in my life, but for some <laughs> I did my best impression of James Bond. Uh, I hope you're still really? doing the same. I'm getting a feeling, Bryn, you must have watched Love Actually and thought, oh, well, that's what you need to do. <laughs> Let's go to a small place in, in Kansas. <laughs> I'm going to say that I, I don't know what you're talking about, but um, you're, you're a human lie detector, so that would be pointless. <laughs> okay, amazing. So you're, you're working for the NCA when you arrived in the UK, uh, when you arrived in the US, but I want to maybe take you back to, to those days. So where, whereabouts you grew up in the UK? So, yeah, I was, uh, I was born in... Born and raised in the northeast of England, born in Sunderland. Um, but I, I actually started my uh, working life um, really in, in, a, in a boatyard on, on the Isle of Wight. And, okay. and I was working on um, the construction of um, customs cutters for Her Majesty's Customs and Excise. And, you know, they do the patrols. And I thought, actually, this is really cool. So I wasn't really going to um, be a boat, boat builder for the rest of my life. And I was like, ah. I, so I thought, I'll apply for customs and excise and they'll put me on one of these cutters because clearly I have experience having worked in the construction of them, right? So, you know, I applied for customs, was successful, you know, went to turn up in London to, to get my uniform and, and pick which cutter I'd be on. And they were like, Congratulations, you, you, you're starting a Kennington VAT office. And I was like, VAT, VAT, <laughs> what, what is that? So, yeah, my, my, my illusions were crushed pretty, pretty quickly. And I, I joined Her Majesty's Customs and Excise as, as a VAT man. <laughs> oh, wow. And in Kennington? Yes, and in Kennington. I, I lived for a year at uh, Gilmore Section House in Kennington, which is owned by the Metropolitan Police. So I. I know the area well. So do you say um, cutter? Did you say these NCA? Uh, no, not NCA. What's it? Customs and excise. Do you say cutter or cutter? What are you referring to? A, a, a boat? A boat, yeah. So, so like a small, you know, small patrol type, type craft, you know. Certainly, certainly wouldn't call it a ship. Um, okay. But, you know, like, this is really cool. This is the, we're going to catch some drugs and stuff. And like, yeah. Glenn, you have to start your life in customs at Kennington VAT office. Yeah, you've got you've got to do your time at the bottom of the pile. Um, and, and, and at that point, Bryn, I was very close to joining the Met. Uh, okay. And of course, if I had to join the Met, by the time I got to forty nine, I would have been able to retire with a nice pension. But I stayed with I stayed with customs. 
do they do they have a less generous pen, pension uh I, I, I'm not sure about that, but certainly you don't see a penny of it until you get to 60. So some people say, oh, Glenn, how's your retirement job with CRC? And I'm like, I'm, I didn't retire. Retirement suggests some kind of pension, right? So I, I, I had to resign and, and, of course, I'll get my pension when I hit 60. There must have been some learning you did at the VAT office as well. You must know all the tricks, all the offshore uh, <laughs> havens to store uh, your money. That must have been valuable to some to some extent. It, it was, it, it, honestly, it was so valuable at the time I didn't realise it. But by the time I was 19, I was actually visiting businesses four or five times a week. So doing inspections as a, as a VAT man for a few years was invaluable, just in terms of talking to people and as you mentioned earlier, human lie detector. Well, when you've got something to hide in your books, then you will give off, give off tell signs, right? So those those hundreds of visits to different businesses all over South London, because by then I was living in Croydon, the Croydon area, what was actually invaluable in terms of then moving into investigation. Wow, 19. What a job to have at 19. Yeah, crazy. Um, looking back, it's just... It is crazy because sometimes I would have trainees with me who were in their thirties, which obviously for me at the time was quite old. Um, <laughs> but I would, I would I would say, oh, you know, this guy's new to the new to the region, so he's coming out with me on this visit. When actually they'd be a trainee in their thirties. So. <laughs> how bizarre! Wow, yeah, that that is a great learning field then. So, so how long were you with Customs? How long until you progressed into or moved into the National Crime Agency? So um, who knows? Maybe I would have still been with customs if they if they didn't break up into Her Majesty's uh, revenue and customs and okay. amalgamations and soccer and all the rest of it. But in a nutshell, I was on secondment to an agency called the National Criminal Intelligence Service. Um, so I was a customs investigator on secondment to NSIS, National Criminal Intelligence Service, um, when the UK decided to abolish uh, our part of customs, abolish the National Criminal Intelligence Service, abolish the National Crime Squad, and then and then make a new agency called the Serious Organized Crime Agency. Oh, soccer, so yeah. because, I was, because I was in a role that moved to the Serious Organized Crime Agency when I was based overseas in Portugal, then my job moved and effectively I moved without resigning to soccer from customs. So you were in Portugal working for customs when you then transferred over to soccer? Yeah, exactly. So I was on secondment to ENSYS, still as a customs officer. But um, as, as soccer came along and uh, as I enjoyed um, seizing large amounts of cocaine, then um, I, it was natural for me to kind of move to soccer, if that makes sense. So I don't want yeah, I don't want to leapfrog that experience of working with companies or gallop through it to go across to the National Crime Agency is something I have a little bit more understanding of because I don't really know a lot about customs. When I was on the crime squad in Newham, we'd occasionally get a controlled, uh, what's it called? Controlled delivery. delivery. Yeah, yeah. So we'd get a nod from you guys and say, somebody's just delivered the load of cannabis wrapped up in tennis ball or whatever. Um, do you want it? And we'd pick it up drop it off and sit there and wait for for the for the naughty boys and girls to come and, and either receive it or ignore it or whatever they they did yeah. depending on how well and quick we could we could deliver it but um yeah, yeah so 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 what sort of yeah give, just give me a, a a fairly 
broad explanation of what customs and excise do. It's it's funny you should mention an example like that because uh, as I moved in, moved into customs investigation division at the time, um, we would effectively try and find ways to go up the chain of the organized crime groups who were importing large amounts of cocaine or large amounts of cannabis so that we could dismantle the group at source often and obviously at source being overseas. So now and again, we would have really good intelligence and literally we would not want to, um, we would not want to uh, dismantle the group until we were ready. So of course we would never let drugs hit the UK streets so we'd be like, ah, I wonder which crime squad group we can give this kilo of cocaine to or 200 kilos of cannabis. So they'd be like, wow, 200 kilos. We're like, yeah, that's that's a big case. And we'd be like, yeah, we really just want to give this away so we can carry on <laughs> up the chain. <laughs> oh, wow. So you were, yeah, so it's international. It's cross-border from day one. That's really interesting. Yeah, so, you know, huge, huge groups, uh, you know, massive amounts of cocaine. Uh, you know, I've worked on cases with 500 kilos of coke, wow. sometimes just stored in a garage, like the messiest garage in South End, for example, where if somebody opened that garage door and looked in, they just see a messy garage and like, oh, this is just a, you know, a load of uh, cheap stuff being stored when actually there was whole dolls hidden all amongst all this stuff, 500 kilos of coke. What a day that must be like when you're, you're yeah. a- acting on intelligence and it comes off to that extent, 500. Incredible. I mean, you know, again, as a guy in your 20s running around chasing these bad guys, just like, I never want to do anything else except this because it's the <laughs> best. This is the best job ever. You know, I was I was brought up as a kid watching Miami Vice in the Sweeney. <laughs> so I was like, this is this is awesome. South End Vice, come on! Yeah, no, I, uh, I shared that. I shared that that excitement. I always feel like I, I joined a bit too late. Or maybe it's, or maybe every officer thinks that when they they join. You know, they think, oh, it sounds so much better in the sort of uh, pre-pace era or whatever. But uh, absolutely, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, because as pace was coming in, it was like uh we but we better actually take heed of this you know this is actually quite serious <laughs> so. for, for those for those many people listening who have no idea what we're talking about so pace refers to the police and criminal evidence act came in in 1986 the year i was born actually and uh and it did it did regulate and change uh, the way policing was done to to quite a significant extent it's still what what governs most policing legislation these days and people look wistfully back at the days pre-place pre-pace yeah, and you, can, you know carry around baseball bats in the back of your car that's a that's a joke that's a joke <laughs> for the purpose of the tape that is a joke <laughs> so um so, so that's fascinating and you moved across you're in portugal one of the things so i i to all the guests i i send out a questionnaire beforehand to get a few bits of nuggets of detail and one of the questions I'd asked on this questionnaire for you, Glenn, was, uh, you know, what, what, where did you think that seed was planted in, in, in regards to responding to injustice? And you used that word, corruption. You had this experience of corruption that, that it was gravel in your shoe. And mm. uh, so why don't you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I guess, you know, and the, the name of your podcast is, you know, Justice and Coffee, like, Justice and bad guys doing their thing, I, I understand it. Not really in terms of child abuse, and I'm sure we'll come on to that, but 
bad guys smuggling cocaine or smuggling cannabis, smuggling heroin to make money, you know, I'm like, okay, it's not something I would do because, you know, I don't want to go to prison for 50 years. But if that's what you do, you do your thing and, and, and we'll do our thing and try and catch you, right? Uh, I kind of get that. But when, uh, when corruption's involved, um, that, that really does stick in my craw a little bit because, you know, once you've, in my case, taken the Queen's shilling and said that you will fight for justice and, and uphold the law, well, then if, you're, if you've become corrupt and you've gone across to the bad side, then, then that's quite difficult for me as a person to handle because I'm like, you're worse actually than the criminals because you're not only a criminal, but you swore to uphold the law. So, yeah, I don't, I don't, know, if the, I don't know if the word angry is right, but it, 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 does, uh, it does something that I just find very difficult to, to grasp. Now, that's not to say... For some of the countries I've worked in, um, where the salary levels are very low and all the rest of it, you can see why it happens, right? Um, but when I when I when I mention corruption and how that effectively annoys me in a country like the UK, where actually law enforcement is is very well paid comparatively, then I just don't think there's any real. Uh, excuse for for corruption and I, I i include in that noble cause corruption as well you know where people have falsified evidence or or anything like that it's just it, that is ab abhorrent to me and you know when I, when I had my first kind of prosecution cases in, in customs and a bad guy that we've locked up for multiple years is literally being sent down which is obviously as you know a uk phrase literally the guy's been found guilty and he's just about to walk down the stairs to serve his sentence. And he looks over and says, well done, Glenn. Well, then I feel good because he knows I haven't, to use a law enforcement phrase, fitted him up. We, we did our game. It was a serious great game, but I presented the evidence to our prosecutors. They lost and they were, they were sent to prison. Like that's fine for me because you know, he took a risk, he lost, and then he has to serve his prison sentence. That's justice for me, not, not, not either, you know, law enforcement taking bribes, um, giving information to the bad guys, or, you know, in effectively even worse, cops who fabricate evidence and, and effectively send somebody down who didn't deserve it, right? Mm. It's interesting. Since... I'm sure it's reached your shores over there as well, but there's a very popular TV show over here on BBC called Line of Duty. <laughs> I haven't watched it. I intentionally stay away from any police drama. I can watch the documentaries, and, and if it's a, a procedural that pays attention to the, the reality of policing, I can probably watch it. But anything with guys sliding across bonnets of cars one minute they're in csi then they've got a gun on their hip and, and you think what the heck is going on here i just can't abide it but i know i know this is a this is a really popular really pop i think it's the best ratings bbc have had in donkey's years and it's about organized corrupt police officers yeah. and i and i and I, so i've been fielding more and more questions about that did you did you ever see corruption please I didn't, right? So in the police, you have the professional standards department or yeah. 
department of professional standards, regardless of what you force you in. Same three letters in one order or another. And they're there to, to do that, to identify corruption quite rightly. But they have that back for, for, as a copper. You know, it's like yeah. they're, they're, they've considered what do we call them? The, the double standards division, you know, or whatever. You, yeah, yeah. you tend to grow a bit of a resentment towards them. But I bet if you if you were working in that unit and you saw what really goes on or, or in certain cases, it would. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm very well aware of that drama. And again, like you, I I haven't watched it. I watched a couple of episodes from an earlier season and I was like, oh, I don't know if I can justify the time to watch all of this, but it, it did get really good ratings. Now, um, I mean, we, again, this is back in customs days. We had cases where we would work with uh, vetted uh, National Crime Squad units because there, there were actual um crime squad officers in, uh, involved in helping the drug traffickers. So we'd have to have what we call offsite officers. So, we, you know, that, that, that level of corruption does happen. I think it's very few and far between. And, you know, I, like I say, I haven't fully watched that show, but I'm sure it's uh, overly dramatized, which has got to be for TV, I suppose, right? Yeah. But, yeah. but, but you, you mentioned a good show I'll tell you one you really need to watch from over here, although it has a British actor as the lead in it, is, is The Wire. You need to watch The Wire. That's, that's like one of the best shows ever. Certainly for the early stages of the early seasons, it's so well done. Yeah, I, yeah, I've seen The Wire. Yeah, I love The Wire. What's the name of that English actor? Dominic something, isn't it? Dominic West, yeah. And um, Luther, I think the actor who plays Luther. Yeah, he's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, he's... they've got and and um, Michael B. Jordan is now a big superstar. He played Creed in uh, mm. you know the, the Apollo uh, Creed films or mm. whatever the, the Rocky, and mm. he played loads of. He, he was one of the kids, wasn't he? He was one of the kids in The Wire. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I had forgotten that. Yeah, it set the careers of a lot of uh, young actors. I think. No, that's a great and it, yeah, that's a great uh, series. It pays quite close attention to what it's actually like. I, yeah, I imagine. The, 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 Season one is based on a real case. Like I, 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 I worked with the DEA agent who was like advising on on that season. It was a real case. So. That's cool. Yeah. So let's take you back to Portugal. You, you've crossed employers. You, you're getting a paycheck now with a different title on the top of it, and it's mm. soccer now. Now referred to as a national crime agency, and. I'd love to ask you a bit about your, your time in Portugal. And you kind of made reference to it at the start about quite a significant case and occupied it. Certainly it will be a significant chapter should you ever decide to write your memoirs in, in Portugal when you were an NCA officer, which was the disappearance of a girl called Madeline McCann. I think that took place in 2007. 2007, yeah. It's still talked about now in, in the UK. People, uh, international listeners might be less familiar with it. Anyone English will certainly have heard the name before. It's received enormous press coverage over the year to this to this day. She's undiscovered. I'm not going to um, describe, I, I prefer you to, but maybe you could just, yeah, give an overview of, of the case in regard to, to what we believe might have happened and, and what happened, and what sort of where we're left with the Madeleine McCann case. Yeah, sure, and, it, and of course, you know, I'll I'll couch this along the lines of what I think I can say and, and what's in what's an open source, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so and so, um, I was based in Portugal as the liaison officer 
um, which we we had one liaison officer in Portugal, and that was me. So um, I happened to be on leave actually when Madeline went missing, and uh, we were moving house, and so. Um, being a guy and interested in football, the, the thing I'd set up first in the new house was the TV, right? The TV was working and the cable was working. But other than that, we had uh, our older son, our younger son, who was a baby at the time, and the dog in the new house and surrounded by boxes and my wife. So as, as the phone calls are coming in, because of course you were never really on leave, right? Because you're the guy in Portugal. So if there's something urgent, you're the, you're the guy. So mm. if you're on leave, it doesn't matter. You're at a birthday, it doesn't matter, you're the guy. So the calls are coming in and um, I have that feeling, you know, that feeling you have as a cop where you're like, this is this is big, this is bad. And although we lived in Lisbon, I say to my wife, I've got to go to the Algarve. And she's like, you know, as you can imagine, any wife would be, um, really, we've just moved house and you're on leave and you've got to go to the Algarve, leaving me with... The baby, the dog in the boxes. As I put the TV on, you'll see what I'm talking about. So sure enough, um, I took off to the Algarve and, and you know, as, as you know, uh, she hasn't been found yet. Um, the, the level of frustration that anybody would feel in a case like that is uh, off the charts. It's probably one of the only cases where I've um, literally cried with a mixture of rage and frustration and and, and here we are now, all these years later, and she still hasn't been found. I mean, from a professional perspective, um, as you know, I left the crime, National Crime Agency a couple of years ago. Um, the German suspect is absolutely what I felt in the first week when she went missing, and, it, and it's what I think now. I think he, he fits the bill completely. Um, actually, only a few months before she went missing, we caught we caught um, a British paedophile who was based in the Algarve. Um, we mounted a surveillance operation, found him and had him extradited uh, back to the UK. He was, he was on the run in Portugal. So if we hadn't have caught him, he would have been the prime suspect. <laughs> um, but but uh, I, I obviously from a personal point of view and from a professional point of view, and most importantly from a family's point of view, I really hope that the German investigators can, can find some closure on it. Um, the location she was taken from was so quiet Bryn it's unbelievable so quiet so dark um, of course I've seen the documentaries on Netflix um, where they show the location at night now and there's this floodlight well that floodlight is new right that floodlight was probably put up because she went missing it was it wasn't there at the night she went missing so uh, you could absolutely um, walk away and nobody would see you it's such a very quiet lovely little location and yeah a real tragedy and for me it's going to be like a, a big bag of rocks i guess that'll be carrying that one around with me forever i bet you will yeah and what were your responsibilities as the liaison officer what did that job entail um so do you mean with regards to that case in particular or yeah. just generally. Yeah, I mean, in regards to, to the Madeleine McCann case. Yeah, with regards to that case in particular is the um, the initial the initial response and then facilitation of UK officers. So, but the initial response is, of course, 
um, any police check you can think of against any person that you can think of. And of course, that's that was the initial thing for the first few days. And then, of course, I speak both languages. So some some level of translation, some level of this is where we are now. Not much level, of, to be honest, of explaining to the ambassador what's going on, because, of course, the ambassador would appear in the news. So quite rightly, he was a smart guy and he didn't want to know things that uh, he, he might blurt out on Sky News. Right. So. Nice, yeah. So. Um, but then facilitating colleagues from CEOP, um, to, you know, to come and give their advice to the Portuguese and um, eventually arranging for um, a detective chief inspector to come out from, from Leicestershire and kind of effectively replace me in terms of overseeing what, what different aspects were being taken forward. So that happened pretty quickly. Within, within two weeks, I was able to arrange for that person because, of course, I had a full-time job and... Um, as well as uh, doing the the general kind of day to day criminality on a bilateral basis, we were also setting up a new uh, maritime drug centre in in Lisbon, which is still running to this day. So. Wow! So for those people screaming at their uh, at their phones or, or whatever they're listening to this on, going, "Well, I don't, I don't want it." You're talking about this. How old was Madeline when she disappeared? She was three. She was three. She was a little girl on holiday with her parents. Parents went out to for a drink for dinner. Just picture, if you can, a pretty quintessential holiday resort, big pool, villas based around it. You know, go down to to a restaurant on site on the site of this holiday resort. Leave your child in the in the hotel room sleeping. Come back and your child's not there. It's like every parent's worst nightmare. Absolutely. And absolutely. I mean, again, you know, we we had young kids. I'm sure most people connected with the case or not instantly replayed everything that they've ever done in their lives. You know, have, have we ever done something similar or the same? And just, yeah, so tragic. And, you know, that that moment of horror. Thankfully, most of us will never have to live through that moment. Right. And we chatted just before we started recording, but I I, I suggested whether you thought that experience had any link if there was anything that could be stitched in your in your narrative in the tapestry of your life between that experience on the case into this ostensibly child protection work that you're doing now what, what do you think to that um I, I don't know if it's if it's fate or coincidence if i'm honest Bryn. Uh, when when i was posted to the states as, as an NCA liaison officer in 2012, it, it, as much as anything, it was a voluntary thing that I said, well, nobody currently has the lead uh, amongst our liaison officers in the US for child protection investigations. So I kind of put my hand up and said, well, I'll be the lead because obviously you build up an amount of expertise and a network and all that kind of thing. So it, it it's probably partly fate and partly coincidence because like I said, that that's a bag of rocks. So of course, I always wanted to uh, help in child protection cases. And don't get me wrong; I did everything else uh, while I was working in Miami, not least um, a large amount of cocaine uh, in the most professional way possible, of course. Um, uh, gun trafficking, money laundering, most things you can think of, but also had the lead for for any child protection related investigations. 
I don't know if you're aware of that, whether that's an unconscious tick or not, but as soon as you said cocaine, you put your finger to your nose and took a big sniff. I don't know if that's <laughs> part of the 12-step recovery program or, or what. I'm, I'm unfamiliar with that. Yeah, wow, amazing. Amazing what that must have been. I've been to Miami a couple of times and I've always wondered what it would be like. I think uh, even though I was only a police officer for quite a short period of time, five years, you do uh, get you do look at different geographies and think, what would this be like to police, whether it's a quiet village in Cornwall or whether it's Miami, you know, you think, what would it, you see the blues go past you and think, wow, what would it be like? Yeah. Yeah. That, that must've been one of the beauties of, of the NCM. Once again, for people unfamiliar with uh, the National Crime Agency, how it operates, it's a, so it's British. It's um, how, would, what would be the best way to, to, to uh, sort of, is there another international version? I mean, it doesn't operate in the same sort of intelligence capacity, maybe you'll disagree, maybe it does, as the CIA do, but in regards to the fact that the, the US have the FBI that works on domestic security issues, terrorism issues, crime issues, and then they have the CIA, which is international. We have MI5 that works domestically, MI6 that works internationally. But the National Crime Agency, what space does that occupy? Yeah, so um, as a comparison with some of the US agencies, uh, the National Crime Agency is a bit of a mixture of some aspects of what the FBI do, quite rightly, and, and often in the UK press, it's you know the UK's version of the FBI. Um, but as you say, um, the FBI also has a remit with regards uh, terrorism, which the NCA doesn't. So the, the NCA really is a bit of a mixture of uh, the FBI, uh, Drug Enforcement Administration, DEA, um, Homeland Security Investigations, um, Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, all rolled into one agency. Mm. And, and importantly, and certainly with regards to, to uh, my experience with the NCA, importantly has that national and international remit for the UK in terms of serious and organised crime. Yeah. That the US does have uh, an amazing amount of law enforcement agencies, doesn't it? It's yeah. a jurisdictional nightmare when it comes to working, working cases. So, so let's get into it then. Child Rescue Coalition offered you this job. They thought, oh, I think Glenn might be good if he came and worked directly for us. How, how easy a decision was that? I imagine that probably wasn't, wasn't an easy yes, was it? Um. Well, the, the opportunity to, to come and work full-time in child protection uh, was attractive to me. Um, but again, the, the if, if you like the risk of stepping out of the comfort blanket of uh, government work, mm -hmm. at, at which point I'd, uh, the, the time we were talking about it, I'd done 29 years and I ended up doing 31 years for, for the Queen, bless her. Um, you know, you had that comfort blanket, right? unless something goes very badly wrong then you are going to get paid next month and the month after and the year yes. after that so that that was one aspect certainly to consider for us but it wasn't a difficult decision in terms of is this what i want to do then absolutely because um really if you think about it i don't i don't have to do a day of work in my life because every single day for one aspect or another i'm helping protect kids so it, there's not many better jobs in the world than that is what i would say yeah, amazing. Uh, I I wrote a paper a while ago. So I was working for an organisation called Justice and Care. That's how you and I first met, and mm -hmm. we were looking into uh, the, the huge and complex issue of um, child sexual abuse material online, the exploitation of children online. Mm. I came across CRC, and what I loved about 
what you're doing because there's lots of different organizations that are attributed to this type of work but what i was so impressed by crc is not only have you developed this piece of ip this intellectual property this uh uh, software uh, that I'd love you to, to to describe, but also the way you you give it away. There's no charge. It's mm. working in collaboration with law enforcement departments in the US, all over the world, teaching them how to to use this software, use this IP um, for the purpose of protecting children online. So, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that that software and maybe um, yeah, maybe a little bit about how, where CRC came from? Yeah, sure. So. Um... <clears throat> First of all, with regards to, to where CRC came from, um, it, it, it effectively was, was some uh, cops monkeying around in, in the US, um, seeing what they could do with regards to, to monitoring of these deep web networks. And they were doing a great job, actually. They, they were developing leads uh, for other law enforcement around the US and then eventually around the world. But as you know, cops are not technologists, right? So to, to scale this to the way it currently is now, it took a lot of, of data processing power. And our founder's father is kind of known as the grandfather of big data. Uh, Hank Asher, his name uh, was, he passed away in 2013. He, he is actually to this day, the biggest donor contributor by dollar amount to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children up in DC. Mm -hmm. uh, a real, you know, a real give back kind of guy, but also brilliant with big data. So he invited the cops down to South Florida and said, you guys have been monkeying around, haven't you? I don't know if he, exactly the words he said, but effectively he said, use my data engineers and build this system in the way that it needs to be built. And, and by that, I mean the processing of huge amounts of data on a daily basis. So that's, that infrastructure um, allows us to now have 22 billion records that can be looked up going back 10 years. And we process 40 to 50 million records a day um, and then make the investigative dashboard which i'll come on to in a second available to law enforcement around the world so um that that investigative portal allows investigators in france in ukraine in the dominican republic and i want to mention that because i know you were there um to investigate suspects in their area who have a proven and illegal uh sexual interest in children so they're consuming uh, child sexual abuse material. And, and really, and this is where I mentioned to you about how far down the rabbit hole, this is where, this is where it, it's diff difficult for people to hear the level of depravity and the age group that we're talking about with regards to these kids, um, because some of them are, are literally toddlers and, and some of the file names are two-year-old, three-year-old. You know, we're not we're not talking about um, something where an 18 year old might have dressed up as a schoolgirl. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about highly illegal child sexual abuse material. And that kind of level of criminality is very, very difficult for people to contemplate. Um, and I understand it. And that's why people generally don't want to talk about it either. Right? It's, it, people would rather talk about um income tax or vat than the talk about child sexual abuse 
I think it's it's something I always ask our listeners to do is to resist the temptation. Like you say, it's totally understandable why somebody will choose to turn off now and say no 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 thanks i don't i don't resent them for doing that or hold it against them but i encourage people to 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 lean in and not um you know we we tread lightly and we're not unnecessarily uh explicit in what we're describing but but this is the reality that this is the reality of what Glenn's doing. This is what the reality of a, a lot of organizations are contending with. I, I'm, I'm grateful for you delineating between uh, a 17 year old girl uh, sending nude photographs to a boyfriend and that being shared online to uh, a toddler, babies, uh, you know, being mistreated, being harmed, being uh, all sorts of manner of uh, sexual abuse taking place on them and the the imprint that can leave on a life is just so so significant and we've tried to chart that on this podcast by interviewing different people and it's 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 interesting how somebody's life can have had an experience of abuse as a child and how whether they are that's they're rescued from that situation they're removed from that situation they're rehomed at an earlier the, the, the impact of that is almost never, um, they never recover it completely. It, it leaves a, a trace, uh, whether they were conscious of it, or whether they have any recollection of it at all. And uh, it really is one of the most significant crimes imaginable, certainly one of the most horrific things imaginable to conceive of. And, and that's why we need people like you, Glenn, and, and, and your colleagues and uh, the very best of us to, to take it on, not to look the other way, not to protect our own sense our own feelings, uh, our own imagination of what is what is humanly possible to do to another human. We've got to push past that because we need to be switched onto it. We need to be uh, alive to that grotesque possibility. And yeah. it's difficult to know how much to, to to share on it. But I certainly don't want us to not. I don't want us to step over it because it's important. People know what's going on. I mean, just to pick up on what you said, then um, with regards the recovery path, and and I know you've had. Uh, one of the best examples of, of, of if you like bouncing back but still struggling through is, is Lexi. I know you've uh, had a podcast with Lexi. The societal impact is very rarely spoken about. Um, you know, child sexual abuse is not just one dark corner and then that's that crime is taken care of. The societal impact for those children as they grow into adults goes on and on and on, and, and the number of suicides. Uh, drug problems and other aspects for those those people is is quite horrific um, and so you know that's why I mentioned Lexi being such a such a great example of somebody who's been able to for my opinion not only overcome but try and give back and try and explain to law enforcement you know this is perhaps something you might want to consider in terms of dealing with victims etc but I think the layers of child sexual abuse are not not well um, not well articulated and by that I mean you know it's a serious crime if a 13 or 14 year old is groomed online um, they think they're sending pictures to their boyfriend or girlfriend they've met online uh, in reality they're sending them to a stranger that stranger then uses that material against them um, that can lead to other types of criminality including offenses against younger children where that 
that predator compels them to abuse their younger sibling, things like that. Now, but that's one level of criminality where with the right education and empowerment, we can help those 13, 14 year old kids uh, protect themselves online, right? Now, a three or four year old is not being groomed online by one of the big tech company social media platforms and then, and then meeting that person in the street and being abused. They're being abused by somebody who's already inside their circle of trust, often the father. Over 80% of the time, the actual physical abuse of these young kids is taking place by somebody in the home. Mm-hmm. That's that's the thing that's very rarely spoken about. You know, uh, the, the, the New York Times did a great series of pieces in the last couple of years around you know, the problems of the big tech companies, and we can come on to what could or should be done with regards to legislation, et cetera. But the level of criminality against those very young, young children has been taking place for thousands of years, right? But now it's available online. And the, the rabbit hole for the bad guy is now more accessible in a way that it was never accessible only 25 years ago. Mm. So as I was making my way into the investigation world in customs, you, know, I, you mentioned controlled deliveries earlier. I went out and controlled delivery of a VHS tape, Bryn. And look at where we are now. It's, mm. it's insane, right? When you compare VHS tape, quite difficult to get hold of. Sometimes bad guys would go to Thailand or the Philippines, abuse a child, send that material to themselves back in the UK and travel, fly back. Well, look at where we are now. They don't need to leave their house to get hold of this horrendous child abuse material. Mm. So... Um, this is maybe too deep for coffee, maybe more over a beer, but you know, I, I think anthropologists will look back in a few hundred years time, they'll look at this period of time and they'll say, yeah, the human brain was not ready for this level of technology. And you know, mm-hmm. some of these dark paths these bad guys are taking, frankly, should not be available because like, like I say, uh, more could be done by the tech companies, et cetera, but it's such a complex web and as you know, the, the internet is not one thing, right? It's a, it's a multifaceted uh, technology accessed in all different ways. So it's not like we can turn off the internet. We all know, like we're sitting here now thousands of miles away, and it's fantastic to be able to connect in this way. But yeah, a lot of challenges, Bryn. Yeah, I think people are addressing this from different direction so from a law enforcement punitive direction in in catching the people that are are buying and trading in this material and and like you alluded to in terms of education and and cultural issues addressing that in in educating children to uh, you know safe use of social media etc and and not sharing images and, and where they can end up going but there is there is something in regard to a culture I mean, this is demand-led, right? This abusive material would not be created unless there was a market for it. Yeah. There's a growing market for it. At the start of COVID, we were all worried to see what the impact was going to be, and, and it didn't take many months to turn over before we saw an enormous spike. Because um, yeah. I remember connecting with with Nick Mick, you referenced them earlier, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in yeah. America, and 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 uh, Internet Watch Foundation in the UK and other organisations just saw this enormous spike in this type of material being being shared, being downloaded and uh, uploaded, and 
that that's the point is we can we could be chasing our tails forever if if we're only dealing with it punitively that how do you change how do you address a culture where people think it's okay and obviously they're now operating uh with a perceived sense of impunity right mm. they think that there was an article I wrote that was on the back of an NCA report that said just three, I call it just three clicks because they found that you didn't have to have a VPN and access to the dark web and a Tor browser and all these things. Yes, you could get it, but you could also access this material within just three clicks on Google. And, uh, and that's the reality of it. So, so when some, when there is a demand, how do you go after that? Uh, and obviously one, one option is you make sure you find the people, you hold them to account and you make it as hostile an environment as possible. And, uh, but I don't know, I don't know what you, could, what you could speak to that. How do we address what is a growing demand for people to access this, this awful, awful uh, material? Yeah, I mean, for, for my opinion, um, we, we are desperately short of um, compelling legislation with regards to uh, the hosting of this horrendous material and the prol proliferation of it, right? So, uh, for example, if you're, um, if you're a large company that has cloud-based services and your deliberate uh, policy is, from a privacy perspective, we don't know what is being hosted in our cloud and we have no interest in knowing whether or not there's a huge amount of child sexual abuse material there, well, then your company is part of the problem, right? Like, until until governments and not companies set the agenda, then I think we're we're still lost, and we will be for many years to come. Because right now, those companies are the ones setting the agenda; they're the ones deciding whether or not uh, they could do or should do more, not governments, and that's wrong. Now, everybody. <laughs> Everybody can disagree with the government in place at the time, right? And I definitely don't want to politicize this because we'll be here till the end of time. But at least the governments have been elected by the people. These companies haven't, mm. but they're the ones setting the agenda. That just seemed, that just feels wrong to me. Mm. Yeah, I know there's uh, some legislation that's going through at the moment in the UK. Uh, I think it's been quite quite slow and, and and there's all sorts of question marks as to whether even when it gets enacted whether it will be effective or or completely toothless because of the the way technology grows and, and develops so quickly that by the time a somewhat archaic way of designing and producing legislation having it diplomatically instated it's already au fait isn't it by the time by the time yeah the online harms bill um yeah. but it at least legislation is coming. <laughs> yeah. So let's see how quickly it can make it through. But that's the one thing that might push this to the boardroom is compelling legislation that affects the bottom line. And obviously by the bottom line, I mean uh, punitive um, um, charges against the companies um, in terms of, you know, like the online harms bill, a percentage of, a percentage of your worldwide turnover is subject to fine. Ah, that, I think that makes it to the board level, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and until that happens, and until eventually there could even be criminal prosecution of named directors and all that kind of thing, that makes it to the board level. Yeah. Um, if anybody's very interested in, in GDPR, then, then good luck with that. But that's the only reason GDPR became famous, because it has, a, a, it has some teeth, yeah. right? So 
Um, and again, living in the US, uh, we're still really dealing with legislation that was enacted when Mark Zuckerberg was joining his high school in 1998. So I think we're decade, decades behind the curve. And as you say, fine, technology does move too quick for legislation. That's always been the case. But now we're decades behind. Like that, that's not right. It just can't be right. Okay. So again, I, whether that's lobbying dollars, I don't know. I, I know we're way behind the curve. I completely, I completely agree. And uh, I was interested. You mentioned GDPR, the general data uh, um, uh, protection regulation. Protection regulation. Exciting yeah. stuff, Ben. <laughs> yeah, that, that is that is the stuff to do podcasts about. Um, but, but, but yeah, it's got this this. Uh, yeah, if, if if you know the head of a company, CEO or chairman or whatever, can be potentially held criminally responsible and prison imprisoned if they don't protect the data appropriately and you think well you've got obviously we've had aml and ctf so anti-money laundering legislation uh, counter-terrorism financing legislation for a long time so if a, a bank or a, uh, you know yeah. a, a money service provider is found to being used to, to clean money of course they are all the time but if they're bound to have been involved in that process then they can be held criminally responsible and, and punitively responsible and fined and why can that not be a simple uh, you know step to take is that if we find that paypal western union whatever money transfer agency or yeah. this internet service provider has been used to exploit a child if this it's been used on facebook messenger if it's been used on WhatsApp, you're going to have to pay a significant fine or you're going to be held to account for the fact that you've not protected your platform sufficiently enough to prevent that from taking place like that shouldn't be a 10-year discussion you know that it should be. It, it absolutely agree i mean it, it, i'm glad you mentioned western union because um as you know none of the financial companies none of the tech companies have to do anything right because there's no law compelling them but western union are to me a shining example of a company that said you know what, we are going to do more proactively. So Western Union have actually, and publicly, um, taken our bulk data and then compared it to their own. So it, it, it's revolutionary for me to have a financial institution saying, yeah, we are going to try and combat bad guys using our platform, which is, is fantastic. But, you know, the, the phrase, um, Help them, help them, helping them find a needle in a haystack is not true because they can find a needle in the haystack. They've got great technology themselves. We are helping them find a needle in the needle stack, right? Because all those millions of transactions, the one that involves child sexual abuse material only becomes apparent when they say, ah, oh, this guy has been sending $15, $20 three times a month to the Philippines. We think it's suspicious. Now we also know the guy has child sexual abuse material. So now we can make a report to law enforcement saying, hey, we thought it was suspicious and we know the guy sending the money has child sexual abuse material, which is already illegal. Now what do you think, law enforcement? So that is really, you know, an industry lead in my book. And obviously I would encourage MoneyGround, PayPal and everybody else to do the same thing. Yeah, amazing. And is that how the the investigators dashboard works in in taking these indices, these millions of pieces of uh, information that suggest that an individual somewhere, an IP address of their computer or whatever, is accessing this material and making that, like you say, um, 
police officers uh, are not known always for being particularly tech aware, uh, making it common sense and simple to understand and then uh, act upon. How, how does that how does that work in a more practical sense? Yeah. So so to use the Dominican Republic as a great example, because the Dominican Republic uh, back in 2015, when I was still in the NCA, a colleague of mine was working in the Dominican Republic uh, for the NCA. And I kind of said to him, oh, hey, along with many other officers in many other locations, hey, this technology is free to law enforcement. All we need to do is get your guys trained on the system, and then they will have their own system in the Dominican Republic. Again, they've been a shining example in the region for proactively using this technology to, to really significantly reduce the number of suspects, rescue untold amount of kids um, down there in the Dominican Republic, which is, you know, like I say, a real shining example. How, how the actual system works in terms of a country like that. If, if I'm a Dominican Republic uh, police officer and I'm trained on this technology, I attend a three-day training. By the third day, the cops are actually investigating real targets in their jurisdiction. So they, they learn on the tool and then they begin investigating the case on the third day of their training. Oh, wow. So, so put simply, they can log in the next day and tie it to their license. Well, obviously, we know they're a Dominican Republic police officer. They will see suspects in their jurisdiction. And then through, through the investigative tools, they can resolve the IP address and then obviously go to a real address. And, and then oftentimes there's, there's children being abused at that location or that offender has access to other children. Because I tell people all the time, this this technology we provide is the minimum amount of crime that this uh, suspect has committed, right? Mm. So if you ever get the chance, and I'm not sure if I have his email address still, but there's a, there's a former, former CEOP guy called Joe Sullivan. He works with offenders and, and he does forensic interviewing of offenders. Uh, he does a job that I couldn't do, but it's so impressive how he leads them through. If they're 36 years old, He'll lead them through when they first committed child sexual abuse, physical child sexual abuse, right? So if if offender if an offender is arrested in a, because of our system and they and they're forty two years old, well, unfortunately, Bryn, they've probably been committing offences for many years, right? So our our system is the minimum amount of crime that bad guys has done. More often than not, they've committed other offences over the years. They've just never been caught before. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So, is that what Joe does? Is he'll go back? So it's sort of victim identification purposes. Is that? It's a bit of a mixture of victim identification and and bringing the offender to a realization of how much harm they caused over time. Wow. Um, and again, I, I don't know if you ever much of a ever much of a Star Trek guy, but there, there's a there's a device in Star Trek. I think it's called a tricorder, where they just hold it up to somebody's head and figure out what's wrong with them. Unfortunately, that's what Joe's trying to do manually, right? Because we don't really understand much about the human brain, do we? So I really value that work and I see why it needs to be done. It's, it's just not work that I could do personally, but it's fascinating to see, to see Joe's work. Like he'll do presentations and he'll show you the interview with the, with the bad guy or woman. Like he's, there's one particular, one particular one with a woman offender where he leads her through where she first offended. Fascinating stuff. 
Yeah, no, I'd like to. I'd like to talk to him. He sounds like an interesting, interesting guy. And I just wonder. I don't know how protected you are from the material, Glenn. And certainly, you mentioned you're your, your father as well. And how do you, personally, professionally, how do you protect yourself from from the exposure to this? How do you handle? How do you operate in this area, but still protect it? What's a healthy uh, practice for you to, to not be too damaged by be, being in this space? No, 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 it's a, it's a great question. And, um, again, from a welfare perspective, uh, fortunately I, I no longer have to see the material. I'm not in law enforcement and it wouldn't be legal for, for me to see the material. Um, but you know, I'm thankful for that because I, I, I saw enough of it when I was, um, dealing with cyber tips and that kind of thing. So I'm thankful not to see it anymore. Even the file descriptions are, are really quite disturbing. Uh, from a mental health point of view, I think um, we all have our own ways, right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm in my office in my house and I do try and leave work behind when I close the door to this office. Um, but I'm not, I'm not saying it's always successful. Um, I guess, it's one of those things where over time you just try and compartmentalize work into you know, a box in your mind where you're like, okay. And I think one of the questions we talked about before the podcast was what makes you angry, right? And, and I really try um, not to get angry about this area of crime, even though it is the most horrific thing anybody could imagine it's the worst crime on the planet for me somebody who could harm a child like that it's so hard for us to intellectually grasp why they would do it but the reason I try not to get emotional about it is because I think well then I can't make as much of a difference so I try and uh, stay kind of disciplined and almost cold because then I have a better chance of um, of helping what CRC is trying to achieve, whether it's relationships with Western Union or, or with law enforcement, or what 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 is the next uh, platform we're going to seek to add to our technology, or how are we going to better combat live streaming abuse? You know, I try and compartmentalize the work, the actual uh, crime that's taking place, and say, okay, we need to be cold on this. What is the best way we can make a difference uh, in in tactical cases, but also in our strategic engagements? yeah it's a long it's a long answer Brian. sorry no it's a good it's a, it's a long but it's a goodie that's a good answer and uh, i think there's wisdom in that i i i sometimes wonder how people do uh stay protected how there's longevity in in these roles but uh yeah it makes sense what you're describing and you said that you, you reference what makes you angry i i wonder if if we're ready to close and if there's anything else you want to share i'm all ears there's no we're not prohibited by time, even though I've got a train to catch in about 45 minutes for that time. <laughs> I live very close to the station. Uh, I wondered, Glenn, what, what, what you're hopeful for. Um, I'm, I'm really hopeful around um, the development of our new technology. Um, you know, we, we, we are actually developing new technology around the live streaming piece, which is always a thing that's talked about a lot, but, but people struggle with, well, well, what could we actually do from a privacy and otherwise perspective, right, about live streaming. So uh, the work that we're doing directly with um, agents who are undercovers in this space is revolutionary. Um, 
a lot a lot more bad guys and i'm talking at least hundreds um you mentioned the marketplace earlier they're going to be arrested now directly because of that technology which is which is exciting because they're not they're going to stop abusing those kids right so um that's great uh the other piece of new technology for us is uh all has also never been done before it's more in the in the um in the world of apps so um bad guys are trading child sexual abuse material uh we think we've identified a really cool partnership where um we'll be able to have that child sexual abuse material processed in such a way that it allows for two major changes. Uh, one, quicker identification of new material, okay? Um, and that's not to say all material isn't uh, a serious crime, of course it is, but that identification of new material means we can more quickly identify uh, victims and save them from this abuse. And then the second one, and it kind of comes back to what you were saying around, um, the welfare of officers and agents involved in this work, it will automate some of that process so that uh, previously seen material does not have to be viewed again and again and again by, by officers. It can be done by machines and the officer can see this description of the file without having to actually see the material. So I'm, I'm really hopeful in the next, it's going to take some building out, don't get me wrong, but I'm really hopeful in the next year or two that we'll be in a position where we're using the technology for good to, to make law enforcement's job easier, which is really what we do at Child Listen Coalition, um, and, to, and to have the technology uh, rescue kids quicker uh, and, and protect officers from, from having to see this horrendous stuff. Because, you know, tragically, officers have committed suicide and agents have committed suicide from being directly in this work because like we said earlier we just don't know how the human brain works well enough and it's affected them in a way that they could no longer handle so mm, yeah so while sounding hopeful i've ended up on a really sour note but um the other the other thing i did want to mention about the dominican republic is we they hosted us just a couple of weeks ago to have six countries come into the dominican republic uh, in the COVID safe way of course but we were able to deliver an instructor accreditation to those six Spanish-speaking countries. What that means is they can go back to their countries in, in the Dominican Republic and South America and deliver training of the system as an instructor. So rather than, you know, instructors from the UK or the US going to host a class and then walking away again, well, now they're instructing themselves in our system, which is really quite cool. That's really cool. That seems very scalable. Uh, yeah. that's amazing it's it's also exciting that you mentioned the the live streaming from my my period investigating what were the, what this space looked like what this what were the the common challenges for for the parties and the actors involved in trying to fight this this growing crime trend one of the the, the universal issues they all they all coalesced around was this difficulty in identifying live streaming so sort of peer to peer if I'm FaceTiming somebody or whatever, and that 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 live stream, that private chat of being abusive in some way, rather than when that's it's a video file or an image that's shared and can be identified, and, and yeah. AI can be deployed in order to to spot certain things. How do we deal with that challenge? So I'm I'm really excited that you've you've mentioned that. It's great that you, there might be something that you're developing that is going to specifically target because I know that's a huge challenge. Uh, yeah. So bravo on that that that. It's really 
really good to hear. And I also, um, I just wanted to give you the opportunity before we, we do close is just to direct people towards CRC if they if they can support, if they want to find out a bit more, if they want to follow along, if I know it's a charity, I don't understand, I don't know how you're funded, whether you, you receive donations, what can, what can we do by, um, by supporting your work? Yeah, so um, childrescuecoalition.org is our website. Um, yeah, and, and certainly we are uh, donor-supported. Donor um, you know, we do apply for and receive grants sometimes to build out our technology. But but yeah, donations are crucial to what we do. Um, and if people can't donate, of course, we understand that as well. Uh, I would certainly encourage them to see uh, education tips because we, we think it's important to kind of show from our experience with law enforcement where parents and, and children can be empowered in this space. Um, but then lastly, we, we're just about to launch the third in a series of, of three uh, education and awareness videos that we have made in 10 native languages. And uh, it's really like I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned Brazil earlier, the Brazilian cops couldn't believe that we'd actually had it made in Portuguese because they've been used to seeing some stuff where it might have subtitles or captions. But the, this has been made in 10 languages. Um, is useful to over 3 billion people around the world. So obviously I went for the, the most spoken languages and um, a law enforcement perspective, a parent's perspective. And then this last one is, is more of a journalistic overview of, this, of the, the state of the problem and the fact that people can be empowered around this. So again, I would encourage people to, to see that, to see our social media channels and, and, and share that information if they can, because again, they're, they're free resources and hopefully they'll be useful. I'm sure they will. Thank you so much, Glenn, for sharing. It's, it's, it's a difficult subject to discuss, but it's been a pleasure talking to you, getting to know yeah. you better. And, and I'm grateful for everything you're doing. I know that the listeners will be too. So we support you. We love you. Keep, keep fighting the good fight and I uh, hope we can, we can connect again soon. Grin, thanks so much for having me on uh, and congratulations for, for where you've got to with what you're doing. I think it's really cool. And uh, I think you, you're pressuring me into ordering some coffee and I'll, I'll have to make sure I do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know what that says about our carbon footprint or protecting the environment <laughs> if it's shipped from Ethiopia to Bristol to the to Boca Raton. But I will, I will, that's on me. You're not, you're not going to buy that. I'm making a note of it now. <laughs> Send Glenn coffee there you go it will happen it's in the notebook thank you mate it's been great talking yeah take care Bryn. thanks man i'm really glad there are people like glenn with his skills and experience working in this rather nuanced area of humanitarian work i am familiar with many of the non-profit organizations in this field and the broader anti-trafficking field some are fantastic some are not so great, but I really like the work of CRC. It's still a fairly young relationship for me, but I have been aware of their work for some time. I love their tech-based approach, the importance they give to collaboration, not just with law enforcement, but also with the tech companies and money service providers too. It just feels like a well thought out, joined up solution. It says on the CRC website that to date, their technology has helped to protect over 650,000 children worldwide. That's amazing. 
I also like Glenn a lot too. He's my kind of people. Level-headed, no-nonsense, compassion-led. I tend to find that good organisations are made up by good people. It is also really encouraging to hear that CRC have developed a technical response to the issue of live-streamed CSAM, child sexual abuse material. This has been the big challenge in this sector in recent years. So I hope that CRC's solution becomes an effective and widely used tool for law enforcement. I thought it was interesting what Glenn said in the podcast about the need for effective legislation. I completely agree. We can't leave it to the big tech companies to police themselves because it simply won't happen. We need to develop legislation with teeth that will hold to account any company whose platform or services are being used to exploit children. It amazes me that this still isn't yet the case. There is a bill in the UK Parliament currently being debated called the Online Safety Bill or the Online Harms Bill, which has some great content in it and it includes these punitive consequences, but it has yet to be enacted. And every day that it gets kicked around Westminster, children and adults are being left unprotected. This legislation needs to be enacted and exercised now. There is no time for political posturing. I should mention that there is some significant resistance to this bill, largely premised on the basis that it may inhibit free speech should platforms be legally required to identify and remove what they perceive to be harmful content. We've already seen this, haven't we, in the way that former President Donald Trump was banned from Twitter. And perhaps there is some legitimacy to this concern. But for me, when weighed against the ever-growing market for child sexual abuse material in an ungoverned Wild West cyberspace, it becomes a really easy choice to make. This is not an anti-capitalist, anti-tech, anti-free speech movement. No, this is about creating a hostile environment for offenders who are currently allowed to operate with relative impunity from the comforts of their own homes as they surf the internet to view and exchange videos and images of children, toddlers and babies being hurt and being abused. And I don't want to live in a world where this takes place unchecked. Are we all not collectively responsible in some way by simply knowing that this is happening right now? If you want to get angry, get angry about this. But turn that anger into action. Write to your local MP and ask, how are they voting on this matter and why you think it's important You can support organisations like the CRC and IJM who are fighting this particular crime type. Support them financially and follow them on social media. Keep an eye out in the press for this issue. Anything pertaining to the online harms bill. Mention it in conversation with friends. Do your own research. Build your understanding. Become an activist. Do me a favour, if you're listening to this outside the UK, would you take some time to look into what legislation you have in your country for this issue and drop us a message? I would love to know. Right, I've gone on too long. It's time to wrap this up. Thank you to Glenn and the CRC for sharing today. And thank you for listening. 
This podcast was produced by Blue Bear Coffee Company. Check us out at bluebearcoffee.com or you can follow us on social media at Blue Bear Coffee Co. It's summer and we are raising money for the Blue Bear Freedom Fund this year by getting on a bike. Our Freedom Ride is taking place on the 5th of September in Norfolk. If you can come, we would love to see you there. We're going to get on our bikes, go for a ride, have some fun, drink some coffee, raise some money for the amazing charities that we are supporting this year at Blue Bear Coffee. If the distance or your diary won't allow you to be part of that event, perhaps you could host your own Freedom Ride somewhere close to you get some friends together get a blue bear freedom t-shirt and some coffee and make a day of it we would love to support you in that give us a message if that might be something you're up for you can email us at info at bluebearcoffee.com or message us on social media right i have nothing more to say until next time peace